Amen. Thank you, folks. Titus chapter number three. Titus chapter number three. If you grab your Bibles and join me there, Titus chapter number three. We'll be there in just a quick moment. Sure are glad you are here this morning and uh, looking forward to this morning's Bible study. And uh, just encourage you, uh, if you have a Bible, we'd love for you to join us and find us and uh, find it with us. Titus chapter number three. There is a, uh, a Bible there in front of you in the back of the pew. We'd love for you to grab that and follow along. And uh, Titus chapter number three, title of this morning's message. The Lord has just kind of lined it up after the last two weeks. God is able, and uh, then God is faithful, and now our God is merciful. Our God is merciful. Titus chapter 3. Paul wrote many of our New Testament books. Most of you are familiar with that reality, and in doing so, he wrote several of the letters to some young preachers that he was mentoring, one of those being Timothy, one even being Titus, and in those letters to both Timothy and Titus, he starts out with a, uh, or not starts out, but he, as part of them, gives what I would call an invocation, a prayer on their behalf. He beseeches the Lord for something for them, and uh, it, it is very similar in each of those. I, I'll show you first. Timothy chapter 1, and it's found in verse 2, the second part. It simply says this, grace and mercy and peace, or grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. And it repeats it several times. In fact, we'll look at the one here in Titus. But this is a trifecta blessing that Paul cries for from the hand of God. It is certainly one that we receive from the hand of God beginning in salvation and then throughout our life here on earth, okay? As we consider what Paul says, first of all, grace, we know what that is in salvation. is God's riches at Christ's expense. And in living the Christian life, it's God's resources for all circumstances and experiences. So that grace, as Paul calls for it in their lives, he would call for it in your life and my life too. Then we see mercy. He says, I may, may the mercy of God be upon you. We'll talk more about that today. And then he says, peace. Peace is a great study because it's not only peace with God, but it's a peace that you and I can have every day in the face of anything and everything. And how does the Bible describe it? A peace that passes all understanding, that is humanly incomprehensible. You can't imagine having that kind of peace in the face of that, and yet it flows from the very hand of God. A great peace. So Paul calls for that and, and asks for it. Now look in Titus. You're in Titus chapter 3. Look back just two chapters. Look at verse number 4 of chapter 1. Verse number 4 of Titus chapter 1. It says this, To Titus, my own son, after the common faith. Here it is, that repeated invocation. Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. Okay, that repeated invocation, and he calls for that. Now, let's focus or kind of uh, uh, magnify the focus, kind of reduce it to just that aspect of mercy. In Titus chapter 3, if you'll turn with me, Excuse me, to verse number three. Notice it, Titus three, verse number three. Notice what Paul says. And can you identify for just a moment with verse number three? Let's put ourselves in, in, in Paul's shoes. And he's saying, for we. So he's encompassing all of us. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, sometimes disobedient, sometimes deceived, sometimes serving diverse or diverse, different, uh, different lusts and pleasures. Sometimes living in malice and in envy. Sometimes hateful and hating one another. Verse 4. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared. Aren't you grateful for that word appeared? 
It appeared to us. It came. In verse 5, we know this one. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. We've been singing this morning of redemption. That redemption plan is a plan of mercy. Amen? According to his mercy, he saved us. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. Verse 6, that mercy which he shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That being justified by his grace, we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And that making of heirs brings in the whole reality of peace. We've been made, we have peace with God and now we're part of the family and join heirs with Christ. Amen. So he incorporates all mercy, grace, and peace all in this one passage here. And, uh, but yet, in consideration of that mercy, I, I want you to see this morning, we're going to reflect on the mercy of God. Because, my friends, we serve a merciful God. Okay, notice it. Through his mercy, he saved us. That's what Paul wrote to Titus. And he says, it was abundantly shed upon us. And let us not forget, it is shed upon us. Our God is merciful every day. He's a merciful God. It's shed on us through Jesus Christ, our Savior, the one who redeems us from every sin. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, you can certainly turn there if you like, but I'll be sharing some verses from it with you. In 2 Samuel chapter 24, we have an instance where David sinned against God. Whereas king of Israel, and later on in his reign and in his life, there is an appeal made to his pride. In other words, as he was certainly saved by faith, looking ahead and in faith in God, yet there was a time where he tripped up, he stumbled, he sinned, like maybe you and I did this past week, maybe uh, past couple weeks, certainly, that we have stumbled or we've fallen in sin in one way or the other. That, that was the same here for uh, David. Now, here's one thing that's interesting. Listen to me carefully. First Chronicles chapter 21 is the parallel passage, okay? So it records and reports the same instance of what happened here in 2 Samuel chapter 24. Now notice this. This is what is recorded in Chronicles 4. It says this, And st- Satan stood up against Israel and provoked David to number Israel. Now, the numbering we'll talk about in a moment. That was a no-no for David, okay? But I want you to see this. Satan stood up against who? The whole nation of Israel. God's people. He didn't want the Israel to be blessed or to flourish. Or he wanted Israel to have problems. And so Satan stood up against Israel. And how did he stand up against Israel? He provoked David. Now it makes me wonder, this week ahead, how is Satan going to stand up against Christ's church by provoking which one of us? How this week, or this past week, did Satan uh, stand up against Fostoria Baptist Church by provoking you? Provoking you to sin. Coming and tempting you, throwing a temptation in front of you. How is he going to do it this week? And and throw that in front of you. Oh, here's David. It it, it happens in his life. And Joab, his right-hand man, comes and says, Hey, David, don't do this. You're not not supposed to number the people. God, God doesn't want you to number the people. No, no, don't do that. And yet, in spite of Joab's uh, protesting and trying to persuade King David not to do it, David sends out Joab Joab and his captains all throughout the land and, and they count the people. And the Bible in the passage tells us God is displeased. He is not happy. He is disappointed in David because David has transgressed the law. He has sinned. He has broken it. 
You say, why is that? Why, why did God make it where he didn't want the kings? He didn't want David to number the people. Now listen to me very clearly in scriptures, the Old Testament specifically. God said, who would raise up Israel to number as the stars in the sand of the sea? Was it David? No, it was God. And who Israel became in the multiplication of their people, that is not to the glory of any man, that is to the glory of God. And so as God told David, no, don't number him. Joab understood, no, you don't want to do this. You're going you're to reap some consequences for your sin. There are bad things going to happen if you sin. And my friend, though our God is merciful, there is always consequences to sin. Okay? He may justify us, and gratefully so, and mercifully so, and graciously so, but there's always consequences to sin. So God speaks through a prophet. His name was Gad the seer. Okay? That'd be an easy name to spell, amen? Gad the seer. And Gad comes to David and says, listen, David, you've sinned, you've done wrong, you've gone against God's word, and so God has told me to give you three options for your punishment. You ever use this with your children? You can choose this or you can choose this. Worst choice of your life if you're a child, amen? And that's exactly what God does. And God comes and says, you've got three choices. But it all happens after something very important. Do not miss it. As Gad has come and spoke to David and said, David, you did wrong. David, in his soft heart, repents. This is what he says. You see the verse, verse number 10. And David... And David said unto the Lord, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. Now listen to me. What does the world want to say? What do sometimes the children want to say? Sometimes you and I as believers want to say, well, First Chronicles chapter 1, the devil made me do it. Satan provoked me. He stood up against it. Hey, the devil made me do it. Listen, my friend, you have a free will to trust Jesus Christ as your Savior. And friend, you have a free will whether or not to sin. Same free will. And the fact is this, you and I, and David realized it. <laughs> he doesn't throw up an excuse. He doesn't say, well, my brother made me do it. Well, Satan provoked me. No, no, no. He says simply this, I have sinned greatly in that I have done. And I beseech thee, O Lord, take away the iniquity of thy servant, for I have done very foolishly. Man, wouldn't you love to hear that from your children sometime? I have sinned greatly. Take away my iniquity. I have done foolishly. Hallelujah. Here's my question, though. How often do you and I come before the throne of grace and throw ourselves before God and say that? How often we try to justify our sin this week when you and I sin, maybe we lost our temple, or maybe we said something we ought not to, maybe we dwelled upon something in our thoughts that we ought not to have dwelled upon, maybe we thought ill of some other person that we should not have done so, and, and we've been smited by our hearts, and boy, we justify, we make excuses, and we say, well, if they weren't like that, then I wouldn't... Wouldn't it be great if God routinely found you and I when we sin, we come before that throne of grace and prayer and we simply say, I've sinned greatly. Remove my iniquity. I have done foolishly. Now let me ask you this, and I mean it with all sincerity. Doesn't a merciful God deserve that? If he is merciful, if he is the God of great mercy, doesn't he deserve you and I when we sin? To come before him and say, Father, I've sinned greatly. Remove my iniquity. Have mercy. David does this. He comes before him. And first, uh, I love his statement. 
um, that Gad comes to him and, and uh, <laughs> gives him these options. I love David's statement and response. We'll get to it in a moment. But he comes to him and says, okay, here's your choice of punishment. You either have seven years of famine upon Israel, or you can choose three months of defeat at the hands of the enemies of Israel, them chasing you, and literally he says, you will flee before them, they will pursue you, or you can choose three days of pestilence from the hand of God that comes upon the nation. And now here's where the, the, the story comes into our sermon, our, our message this morning, our study on the mercy of God. David takes all those options that, that Gad has given him, and, the, and he says, boy, I'm in a straight, I'm in a difficult situation. But he makes a decision, and do not miss it. Based upon what he knows about his enemies, and more importantly, what he knows about, about his God. So guys, like, what's your decision? What, what decision are you making? Which, which option are you choosing? He chooses the three days of pestilence. He chooses the, the three days, the nightmarish days for the nation of Israel, for God to allow a pestilence uh, uh, to come upon the nation and even kill many. And he, that's what he chooses. You say, why in the world would David choose that? Because here's what he said. Verse 14, notice it. And David said unto Gad, I am in a great strait. Let us fall now into the hand of God, for his mercies are great. And let me not fall into the hand of man. You see his thinking. You see his understanding of both his enemy and more importantly his God. First Chronicles 21 reads it as such, for very great are his mercies is what David says. May I just put it simply this way, as he is facing judgment of his sin, David is dwelling upon the mercy of his God. How truly merciful he is. So Gad, go tell God, I'm going to take the three days of pestilence. Well, you know what happens? God brings the consequences of his sin. He allows the pestilence to come as David has chosen. And boy, it starts to sweep across Israel. In fact, the Bible tells us there's 70,000 men who lose their lives. As it's progressing, and we don't know if it's in day one or day two, but it's progressing. And the angel of the Lord, he is the one that was tasked with coming and spreading the pestilence and, and deciding where it falls and when it falls on different parts of Israel. And as he does so, he's beginning to extend his hand towards Jerusalem. Uh, no doubt, likely the largest populated city in all of Israel that time. And he's about to stretch out his hand so the pestilence would fall upon Jerusalem. And as he does so, something happens. His hand is stayed by something. What is that? What stops the angel as he's spreading his hand out to, to bring the pestilence on Jerusalem? May I just simply tell you this? It's something that David even foretold of. It's this. It's the mercy of God. The mercy of God. In fact, God speaks and he says to the angel simply this, it is enough, stay now thine hand. Now I want you to see, David then in turn builds an altar, he worships God and praises him. And David was right, wasn't he? Do you think his enemies would have had mercy? No. He said, let me fall into the hands of God. Why? Because our God is merciful. Our God is merciful. 
You know what David deserved? For Jerusalem and the rest of Israel to be, uh, that pestilence to fall upon them, for them to, to pay that debt and, uh, because he had sinned as their leader, as their king. He deserved, it was rightful for that to fall on them. And yet it did, and God stayed his own hand, and David worships him for such. But this is my question. Why would David do that? How would David know that? How would David know, and where did he learn to say, you know what, I want to appeal, I want to throw myself upon the mercy of God. Later on, David would write in Psalm 103, verse 8, this simple statement, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. And I like this statement, amen? Plenteous in mercy. You know what I like? I, I like when I go to my refrigerator or my cabinets where we keep food and I open them and say, wow, we've got plenty to eat. I like that, you can tell. Thankful for that. You know what I'm more thankful for though? Every day we come to the throne of grace and there's a plenteous of mercy for each one of us. There's plenty of mercy. You say, man, I, I messed up. I slipped up this week. You know what? You confess it as David did. You say, God, I have greatly sinned. Remove my transgressions from me. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And my friend, I'll tell you, that is a great expression of his mercy. That he would remove that sin from us. A merciful God and a promise of it. Yet it's obvious in this story for David that he had experienced and understood the mercy of God. So where did that happen? I'm someone who likes to ask the questions. Where did that come from? How would he have known that? Where, where, where did he learn that? What experience did he go through where he would have learned, my, my God is merciful. I'm going to throw my hands on the, uh, and throw my life in the hands of God because he's a merciful God. Where did David learn that? Well, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, several chapters back, we, we are familiar that with David stumbling there too in this chapter. See, all is going quite well. He's finally king of Israel. The nation's doing well. His enemies were cowering before him. Israel's armies were defeating their enemies left and right. They were conquering much more land. And things were going wonderfully well. David decides to stay home instead of going with his army. And, and in doing so, he, as is the custom in many Middle Eastern uh, places, one day he's, or night he's, he's out and he decides to spend some time on his rooftop. And as he does, he spies a beautiful woman washing herself on a, on a rooftop some, some ways away. Now listen to me. He makes a decision, and young people, don't miss this. He makes a decision right there, right then, on top of that rooftop. When he's looking, he continues to gaze. And in that moment, may I tell you right now, he followed his lust instead of following his Lord. Remember what we read in Titus chapter 3 and verse 3? That there was a time where we followed different lusts and desires. And now David, yes, certainly a believer, one who's had faith in God, he slips back into a moment of sin. He slips back into following his lusts and his desires. And he desires her. He wants this, this woman for his own and he inquires after her. We might put it this way. He proceeds to give his lust legs. Because he calls for her to be brought unto him, and, and he, he does it. His men go and bring her to his house where he commits adultery with her. This woman who is another man's wife. 
Well, the Bible tells us this. It's a principle found throughout, and yet even specifically, be sure your sin will find you out. And my friend, it always will, and it always does. We've pointed it out before. Sooner or later, payday comes. Sooner or later, payday always comes. And it did in this situation. And it was in the form of Bathsheba, that was the lady's name, and Bathsheba becoming pregnant. Uh Uh-oh, now we've got problems. Hey, may I tell you what it was? That was a telegram from heaven. David, time to confess and forsake. David, you did wrong. Come to me, I'm a merciful God. Would you fall down before me? Would Would you claim and understand your sin? And yet David does. And you know what David does? And boy, we do this sometimes. He tries to fix the situation with everything but the right tool. He tries to fix it himself. The right tool is what? Confess it. Forsake it. Find forgiveness at the throne of a merciful God. Well, David's tool and idea to fix it is simply this. He takes her loyal husband. Boy, Uriah, a soldier who was loyal to David and loyal to the the nation of Israel. And he calls Uriah home. He says, hey, you need a break. I want you to go home. I want you to go in into your wife. And he's hoping, David, in his wickedness, is hoping Uriah will just say, okay, then when this baby's born, then it's my child. Everything's hunky-dory and fine. And David goes, aha, I got it all fixed. It's wonderful. Isn't it funny that when you and I think we've got something fixed, how it falls apart just like that? One of the quotes in history is this, the best laid plans of men and mice fall apart. And so it is for David. Uriah doesn't cooperate. His soldiers are on the field, and he doesn't want to enjoy the luxuries of home if they are not, so he doesn't do it. You know what David's finding out? And young person, don't miss this. Christian, don't ever forget it. You know what David's finding out? You can't ever cheat the law of sin and judgment. There's no hack for it. There's no way to circumvent it. There is no way for you or I to fool the laws of sin and judgment found in God's word. So, David comes up with another idea, another tool. Uriah's not going to cooperate, so I've got to do something more drastic. And so he devises the wicked plan of, you know what? I'm just going to murder Uriah. So he comes up with an idea. He gives Uriah, interestingly, he puts in his hand his own death sentence to take back to to Joab, who's at the front of the army's lines as they're attacking a city. And in that letter, he says, here's my plan, Joab. I want you to take Uriah, and I want you to stick him in the worst part of the fight. And as he's there, I want you to withdraw everybody. So could you imagine what that was like? And David spells it out in this note to Joab. May I tell you, listen to me carefully. David was a ruthless man. David, when his heart is not right with God, is desperately wicked. Now I want you to see something. Every one of us are likewise. We're desperately wicked. Our heart's not right. When we are not following God, when we're following our lust and doing our own thing, we are desperately wicked. And man, for him to do this, David in his flesh is a cruel, mean person. Somebody has said something to me before. They, they've known a Christian who's been unkind. They've known a Christian who's been cruel and mean and, and just, just rude. And they, How can a Christian ever act like that? I'll tell you why a Christian can act like that, because they still have that old flesh in here. 
And if you give a little lead to that old flesh, my friend, he'll take you where you don't want to go. Keep you longer than you want to stay. He'll cost you more than you want to pay. Give it a little lead. Let your flesh rule and reign as David does here. And you're going to have a mess. You think about it. What would Uriah think as he's in the battle and he's fighting and all of a sudden he looks around and all his comrades, all his fellow Israeli soldiers fall back and he's all alone and he's surrounded by the enemy. That's exactly what happens. Joab does exactly what David asks of him and uh, once the evil deed is done, he sends a note back to David. And somehow in this, David reads it, and he hears that Uriah has been killed, and it gives another report of how the battle's going, but that's the most important part, because all David is concerned about is covering his sin. Isn't it amazing when you and I are in sin, how selfish we become? How self-focused on our plans and what we want and what we're doing, and so it is with David. And so he reads this, and he reads, he jumps down to the party, he probably skips a couple paragraphs, and right there, oh, Uriah, yeah, died. That's what David thinks. And yet in the letter, he senses, boy, this isn't sitting well with Joab. Joab's not liking this. this is a, I, I can tell he's a little worked up. He's a little upset over this, the whole thing. And so David writes back to him. You talk about a calloused heart. Now, wait a minute, Pastor Henry, isn't David a man after God's own heart? Yeah, when he's doing right. When he's right with God. He's not right right now. Notice what he writes back. Amazing statement. He writes to Joab, Let not this thing displease thee, for the sword devoureth one as well as another. Goodness. You talk about a guy excusing sin and murder. Can I tell you what should he should have written? He should have wrote something like this. You are right that this thing displeases you, for sin devoureth one as another. And so it did. David's sin had devoured Uriah. Now what happens? David thinks everything's fixed. This is perfect. It worked out. This is wonderful. He takes this newly made widow. He makes her his wife. And uh, they'll just explain away. Boy, there's a quick pregnancy. (laughs) Everything's going to be fine. We're going to cover it up. But oh, friend, David, as well as you and I, should have known There is a God in heaven who will not let his children get away with sin. And so, that God of heaven sends a prophet named Nathan. Nathan comes before David. David, things are wonderful. Things are great. Everything's working out. He he thinks he's gotten away with it. And Nathan comes before him. He goes, David, I, I got a little story to tell you. David gets on the edge of a sea. He likes a story. He's sitting there, and Nathan proceeds. In a certain city, there was a rich man, and there was a poor man. And this rich man, he had flocks and herds galore. Uh, He had as much as any man could imagine or want. The poor man, not so much. The poor man, in fact, he he only had one little lamb, a ewe. In fact, he, he had gone and he had bought it and he had let it grow up with his family. Now listen to me, okay? I have been of the opinion that only now in the crazy time and culture that we live can we treat animals like people. I honestly thought, this is crazy. We treat them, you know, people treating their dogs and their cats and other things like daughters and sons and everything else. I stand corrected because the Bible says this man treated this lamb like his daughter. So there were crazies back then too. Okay, anyway, just kidding. Uh, 
So I, I, literally, that's what, this is funny. He says this. He's, he, the, the you grew up with his children. He ate, or she, excuse me, the you ate at his table. And it literally says, the Bible does, that you drank from his cup. And to all that we say, ooh, <laughs> no pun intended, okay. <laughs> drank from his cup, treated him like a child, a daughter. And at his t- I mean, this was, this was a part of the family. This was a treasured lamb. Then Nathan says to David, well, the rich man had a friend come in one day, a traveler from afar, and he wanted to uh, do a, a, bit, a big shindig, and so he wanted to put a feast out before him. And so this rich man, he, he, he went to his neighbor, and he didn't go to his own flock, as many herds, his abundant resources. He didn't go there. He went to this poor man's house, and he took that one ewe. He took that little lamb, and he sent it off to his chef, and his chef killed it, cooked it, and served it. And they ate it. They said, hmm. Nathan starts to see what's happening to David. Now, you can imagine, as I might, I, uh, I would imagine David, being a shepherd, probably grew very close to his sheep, don't you think? Don't you think maybe David had names for each of his sheep? And that shepherd's heart is just enraged. He is angry. How could someone do that if they did that to my sheep? Man, I, oh. And David is angry and mad, and Nathan sees it. In fact, David responds in that anger, in that wanting and desire for justice. He was furious. Here's his verdict. He says this in 2 Samuel 12, the next chapter, verses 6 and 7. And David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord liveth, the man that hath done this thing shall surely die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. You can also read in there because he had no mercy. Now, isn't that interesting? Now, listen. David is acting according to the law in one way. See, the Mosaic law that the Jews went by, it certainly forbid stealing a thief. Taking from someone else what doesn't belong. In fact, here's what the the law says. Exodus chapter 22, verse 1. If a man shall steal an ox or a sheep and kill it or sell it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for sheep. Now, did you catch what David got right? He says, Nathan, he's going to restore fourfold. He ought to do that. That's right. But wait a minute. What else did David say should happen to this guy? Surely he shall die. I'm the king and I'm going to pronounce him. He deserves to die. Well, wait a minute, David. That's nowhere in the law. That's not in there. you're, You're adding that to it. Why did he say that? Now, don't miss it. David hints at the reason why this man should die because he is what? He is not merciful. It's a bit ironic, isn't it? Was David merciful to Uriah? way not a chance not at all you know what happens you know well i I just picture nathan being an old prophet and boy he's a great storyteller and david's been on the the edge of a seat and david's now angry mad he just said i'm gonna make this right and 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 that old prophet maybe finger shaking points at david and he says what thou art the man I just think that maybe David changed 48 shades. I think he probably then ended up white as a ghost. 
Because you know what happens when you and I sin and we're a believer? Our heart, the Holy Spirit, our conscience is always convicting us. So now the light has come on. His heart may have been hardened, but the shades have been pulled back. God has stuck his finger right on the sin that now had really consumed David in his life. Nathan goes on. He makes it clear that God is very displeased. God is angry. God is not happy. And his sin is going to be punished. Now listen to me. Do not miss this. Because here's a big uh uh-oh moment. David's sitting on the throne. David knows the law. He's just proven it. The law says this man, he added to it, the guy should be killed, but fourfold. Now David's sitting here. He says, listen, you're going to be punished. You've broken the law. You have not done right. And David says, "Uh uh-oh. You know why David says, "Uh uh-oh? Because the law is not going to be nice to him. The law demands some things. He didn't steal just a lamb. He committed adultery. He stole someone's wife, and he committed murder. What does the law say about that? The law is pretty specific. Leviticus chapter twenty, verse ten: And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he hath committed adultery. Even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. I do not find it humorous or ironic. I find it humorous. I do not find it ironic. You know what David said about the guy who stole a sheep? He should surely be put to death. Do you realize whose coffin he just put an L in? Who is the adulterer? David. He's got a death sentence on him. There's no wiggle room here. You're an adulterer. You stole a man's wife. You committed immorality with her. You defiled her. You are an adulterer, and according to the law, you deserve to die. But that's just the first offense. The law goes on and says this in Exodus chapter 21, verse 14. But if a man come presumptuously, premeditated upon his neighbor, to slay him with guile, ah, doesn't that sound a little bit like what David did? Didn't he use a little subtlety, a little guile to throw him in the front of the army and get him killed? With guile, thou shalt take him from mine altar. In other words, uh uh-uh. He will die. You say, well, Pastor Henry, it wasn't wasn't David that picked up the knife. Oh, my friend, don't get caught up in human trying to excuse something. Even God said this in verse 9. Thou hast killed Uriah the Hittite with a sword. He was proclaimed a murderer. So get it. Don't miss it. David is looking the sentence of the death in the face. Once over, twice over, deservedly. He is guilty and deserves death. Now listen, the king of Israel, it doesn't matter. You were an adulterer. You were a murderer. You deserve death. What does the Bible say about you and I? For all have sinned, come short of the glory of God. For the wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. You see, this morning, we too stand in a place of condemnation. We deserve death. I put it this way, twice over, <laughs> Three times over, hundred times over, every sin you and I have committed this week issued the death sentence upon us. 
the death sentence. For all have sinned, okay? If I sin, then that means I am guilty of death. I deserve death. No excuse, no bartering with any supposed goods we have done. Did David do a lot of good things? Yes, he sure did. But my friend, good works will not justify you. Good works will not cause you to escape death. There's no hope. Whether you're a king like David or the cruelest of criminals, the death sentence is upon all of us. It is what we deserve. We, we do not deserve mercy or pity, but rather death, just as David did. And yet, in that same chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 12, there's a, a most interesting interaction here. In verse 13, David says to uh, Nathan, after all this, he says, David said unto Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David goes on to admit that he is a sinner, confess his fault, his wrongdoing. He owns up to it and what he's done. Let me encourage you this afternoon. I would encourage you to read Psalm 51. We don't have time this morning, but Psalm 51 is written day by David when this happened. And it is a terrific psalm of confession, forsaking, throwing ourselves at the mercy of God. And David writes that. But when David, Nathan speaks for the Lord unto David, it's a small phrase that he says to David. But listen to me, it speaks volumes about the mercy of God. Have you caught it before? Look at it. Verse 13, the rest of the verse says this. And Nathan said unto David, The Lord also hath put away thy sin. Thou shalt not die. Why would Nathan say that? Because the law demands it. The law says, hey, you're a sinner, you're an adulterer, you're a murderer. You deserve to be put to death. And David's sitting on the throne. He's white as a ghost because he knows the law. I am doomed. I have a death sentence upon me. (laughs) I'm going to die. And he says, I have sinned before the Lord. And Nathan, in response to that, simply says, thou shalt not die. Oh, yes, you deserve to die, but you won't. Yes, there's going to be grave consequences to your sin. The child's going to die. The sword's not going to leave your family. Uh, Similar things are going to happen to you down the road. But God is going to show you great mercy. Now, look, aren't you thankful that that was a foreshadow for things of us? For God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, we were under a death sentence, he hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved. Man, I have a death sentence. You have a death sentence. And yet God is rich in mercy that has made a way through faith and trust in Jesus Christ that we can escape death. That you and I, like David standing there, we deserve it. Multiple times over, every sin you committed this week, it makes us deserving of death. Eternity in hell apart from God. And yet there is a merciful God that my friend looks at you and I much like he did through Nathan to David. 
So we ask the question, how could David several years later throw himself there in in chapter 24? He goes, listen, of my three choices, I'm not going to choose to throw myself at the mercy of my enemy. No way. I'm going to throw myself at the mercy of God. Why? Because I'll tell you, it was because he had already tasted, experienced, and daily enjoyed the mercy of God. If I have to choose my consequences, I'm throwing myself on the mercy of God. And certainly that proved to be a wise decision. But you realize what for David it was? Every day after, it was a reminder. Every day, there is a merciful God in heaven in whose hand I must place myself. May I tell you, friend, if you're here today, I want you to know that the one and only true God, the God of heaven, is truly a merciful God. He is great in mercy to all Throw your, yourself at his feet today. Trust in him as your savior if you have not. Why? Because he is rich in mercy. Hebrews chapter 4, Paul would write in verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace. What? That we may obtain mercy and grace in time of need. Man, we serve a merciful God. For you and I, our sin <laughs> makes us deserving of hell. But praise be unto God, his mercy is death-defying. Death-defying. Just ask David. Just ask anyone who's put their faith and trust in him for salvation. I love this. In that mercy, you know what God did? He took your death sentence, he took my death sentence, and he took it, and this is what he did. He wrote over that death sentence a simple reality. He said this, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And then he added a little footnote from Romans. He said this, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are what? In Christ Jesus. Who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Who are his through faith in him. I'm done, but listen to me. If you're here today and you have yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you have yet to call upon him for salvation, may I encourage you, you need to come today before that throne and you need to cry to him, be merciful unto me, a sinner, and save me. You know what the good news is? You can boldly do that because we serve a merciful God. You can fall at his feet and say, Father, the sins that I've committed in life, it makes me deserving of hell. The wages of sin is death. But Jesus Christ, I believe, has died on the cross for me. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me. And my friend, can I tell you, as it is proven true in the Scriptures, he'll save you today. You say, I don't deserve it. That's right. None of us do. He is a merciful God. Merciful. Believer. You've sinned this week. You've sinned maybe this morning. Uh, You've sinned uh, multiple times and you haven't been confessing it. You haven't taken it and forsaken it and repented of it. May I encourage you, you need to come before that throne of grace and cry, be merciful to me, a sinner, and forgive me. Wash me clean even now. And aren't you thankful you can boldly do that? Why? Because he is a merciful God. The most amazing aspect of this is this reality. You remember Jesus Christ was standing with his disciples and he was telling a, a parable. He said, a Pharisee and a, and a publican, a, a tax collector, a wicked person, and the Pharisee had gone in to pray at the temple. And the Pharisee stood up and prayed and he said, I am so thankful I'm not like these people over here and I'm not wicked and I'm not this and I'm not that and, and I'm so thankful I'm not this. 
And then the publican got up to pray, and, and Christ said this about him. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up his, 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 excuse me, not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And you know what the mercy of God is? Christ went on, he said this, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified declared righteous why because the publican was a was a great guy no you know why because we serve a merciful god and i'll tell you this morning you've walked in here if if you think your sins make you deserve them hell you're right if you think you're a desperately wicked person yes you are but my friend if any of us call unto god be merciful unto me a sinner save me our merciful god says you can leave this building justified declared righteous now believer listen to me and we're done you walked in this morning and there is the ugliness of sin in your heart and your life you have yet to confess it you have not put it upon an altar you've not come to god and confessed that you are walking around just like david you are a desperately wicked christian because your heart's not right with god but i've got good news today you can come to your savior you can come to your god and you can say, be merciful unto me, a sinner, and forgive me. And my friend, you can leave today justified. Yes, in salvation, but even now, that sin can be washed away, and you can walk away knowing everything is right with your God. How about it, Christian? We serve a merciful God. Aren't you thankful for that this morning? Father, we thank you for your word. We are grateful for you as our merciful God, not only in salvation, but the reality of, Father, that you have allowed us the privilege of daily coming and confessing our sins and forsaking our sins and knowing that we walk away with that sin removed, that sin being justified, thrown away, and that we have walked away in that blood that is shed upon the cross of Calvary for us. My Father, I'm grateful that you are so merciful to us. Lord, we don't deserve it. We can't explain it, why you would be so good to us. But we're grateful that you have invited us day in and day out to come before this throne of grace, to obtain mercy and grace that we need. Father, may we do that today. Lord, I pray for the one who's not saved, who doesn't know that heaven is their eternal home. My Father, may they come today to this altar. May they throw themselves upon your throne and beg for mercy and beg to be saved. And Father, I am grateful for your promise that you will save them. Lord, I pray for the Christian here who has sin that is unconfessed, some things in their heart and their life that they have not dealt with right. Lord, may they come to this altar. May they throw themselves upon your throne. May they obtain mercy and grace. They confess and forsake that sin. My Father, this morning, you as a merciful God deserve it. Why would we try to fix things ourselves? Why would we try to follow our own lusts? Lord, I pray this morning that you would move in our hearts and our lives, that we would always turn to our merciful God. May we turn to you. You've redeemed us. You are a merciful God. Help us now.